We're going to talk about Leviticus. We've been in this series for several weeks called the Emmaus Road. And if you recall, the Emmaus Road idea is in the end of the book of Luke where Jesus appeared to two um, two disciples, and he, they, they're, who is this guy, and whatever, and they go on this travel with him, and he opens their eyes to the scripture that they could see him throughout the Bible. And the thing is that we need to understand is that Jesus is in there. Either Jesus you can see directly through what we call a Christophany, you can see it through the types and shadows, or you can see the concepts of redemption and, and the work of Christ all the way through it, and the book of Leviticus is no different. And so how we equated this, and it, it was, I showed you a couple pictures. If you put the first picture up, nope, not that one, very first, there we go. You see a pile of garbage. Now we're not comparing anything to a pile of garbage, okay? But the light is shined on. It looks like nothing. But when you shine the light on it, you can see an image is created. And this is what we're, how we're trying to process what Jesus did. Is that not that there's a pile of garbage in the Old Testament, because there certainly is not, okay? So don't walk out of here thinking that. But the bottom line is that while it didn't look like much to us, when the light was illuminated on it, now it all becomes clear what the point was, why they did these things, what was going on. And so that is what we've been doing, is we've been going through this. We talked about the covenants. We've talked about um, all the, the types and shadows as we went. We talked about the characters that were there that pointed to Christ and all of that. Now we've been going through the books, right? We started with Genesis. Last week we took two weeks in Exodus. And last week we talked specifically about the tabernacle. Go ahead and put that picture up now. And this is the, the picture of the tabernacle. Now, this is not an actual photo because they didn't have that back then. This is an artist's rendition. But you see a lot of the things that we talked about last week. I've got my handy-dandy little pointer here. I don't know why I'm enjoying this as much as I am, but I am. But here you've got what would be the courtyard. You've got the fence, very specific on the dimensions. This is the gate. It's on the east side of the camp, so this way is east, so you can do the rest on your own. You have the brazen altar. You have the brazen laver where they washed, and then you go inside. And so, and that, and that itself, the tabernacle, and there was two parts in there, if you remember. There's the holy place and the most holy place. And so, in the holy place, they had the table of showbread, they had the golden altar, or the, the uh, lantern, whatever you want to call golden lampstand, and then the altar of incense. And they all had significant portions of what they signified and why they did it. Now, did they understand everything that they were enacting, or were they just simply being obedient? Very likely, just being obedient. We weren't there, we don't know. Then, you get past the veil, which was this very thick curtain. Some say it is the thickness of a man's hand, and that would depend on the man, okay? You know, some, not everybody was born with bear paws like I was, but... The thickness of a man's hand, and only the high priest went in there on the Day of Atonement. And inside of that was the Ark of the Covenant, the Indiana Jones thing, right? That's the way I always think about it. It just cracks me up that they're chasing the Ark of the Covenant, and then he drinks the cup, and that was what they were, I don't know, it was bizarre to me. Anyway, squirrel, there we go. Anyway, and, but inside of that, and then on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, and this was called the thr throne of God, and you had the two cherubim that were on it facing each other. It was all made of gold. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant were the Ten Commandments, Aaron's, Aaron's staff, and then a jar of manna. Okay, and we talked about what those signify, that you have in the Ten Commandments that you have God's laws, or God's ways is one way to look at that. You have the staff of Aaron, which is the, the power of God. It was what was used many times in the, the, the ten uh, plagues that were put on Egypt. I mean, it was used. It was powerful, and it was budding. There was life in it, the power of God. And then, of course, you have the manna, which is God's provision. And Jesus said, that manna, that was me. 
He says that I am the bread of life. And so this is the stuff that we talked about last week. Um, But all of this is pointing to Jesus. It's, it's about the way that we do things. And so today, as we get into Leviticus, we're going to focus our attention on the sacrifices, the things that were. There were five different kinds, and we'll talk about those here in a minute. But there's a lot of things in Leviticus, and if we went through everything, I mean, you honestly could spend a month teaching through the book of Leviticus. I know that's hard to believe, but, but it's, it's important stuff that we understand because we have to remember that the New Testament is built on the foundation of the old. The guys that wrote the New Testament knew the old. They understood it. Their eyes were open to it. I mean, what do you think Jesus opened their eyes to? It wasn't the New Testament. It didn't exist. It was the Old Testament. And so we have to understand these and how these things prefigure Christ. So when we talk about Leviticus, it chronologically, and of course, just simply logically, it follows Genesis and Exodus. Because what happens in Genesis? You start with the creation, and then you have the fall of man. And then you have the separating of the nations with the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And then you have the call of Abraham, that he's separating. This is the beginning of God's redemptive plan. And then he goes through that. Then you get to Exodus, and you're dealing with the story of the Exodus. Clever how they put that all together. And and you've got the story of Moses coming there. He brings the people as he's a type of Christ because he is one. He's a redeemer. And how they go through the desert. They go through the Red Sea. I mean, all the provisions that God made for them was incredible. But then you get to Leviticus. And Leviticus is now laying out God's instruction to Israel. And it's really in a way that we can process is how man can have a relationship with God. And as if you've ever read it, it's pretty stringent. There's a lot of things that goes on. So Leviticus picks up where Exodus leaves off. God instructs Moses from the entrance of the tabernacle. Where Exodus describes Israel's redemption from Egypt, Leviticus involves this liberation that goes on from something that's even more bondage-creating than what the, the slavery was in Egypt, and it's sin. It's, it's this idea of how do we become free from this? And as we know, while their sins could be atoned for, they can never be completely removed. They can never truly break the bonds because the blood and bulls of goats are not nearly enough. And so this is where God instructs on all the sacrifices in detail, and they begin to carry them out. It's the first seven chapters of the book of Leviticus, which is where we're going to spend our time today. All right? So it was a way for them to atone for the sin. And God is implementing his promise to Israel to set them apart from all the other nations. He said, I'm going to make you a nation of priests. And so this is what he's doing. They become the Leviticus uh, uh, tribe, if you will. They become the nations of priests. So he makes them this. And the point was to bring all the other nations to the Messiah. They were to be able to look at Israel and say, obviously they are serving the one true God because look at their blessings. Look at their life. They're going into a land flowing with milk and honey. You know, they didn't have rivers of milk and rivers of honey, but you get the the euphemism that's used there. And here's the problem, is that most of us are happy to read Genesis. We like Genesis, creation, you got Abraham, we we like all that stuff. And then we're like, man, the Exodus story, that's pretty cool. We like Exodus, and you got the cloud and and the fire and all this other cool stuff. And then we got, oh, and there's Leviticus. Let's just skip that one, and we'll move on to Numbers, right? I mean, it's tedious. It's not exciting reading. And the reason for that is because it's really not applicable to our lives today. We do not sacrifice. We don't deal with the clean and unclean things in the way that they did. Certainly, there are clean and unclean things that, that we deal with. 
But it's hugely important that we discern what's going on because the mindset of an Israelite is wrapped around this concept. And you ha- in order to truly comprehend what your Bible is telling you, you have to get into their world. You have to understand what were they thinking as they wrote this stuff and stuff. So it gives you this glimpse that's into their world and what was going on to them. This sacrificial system, the festivals, the priesthood itself, it all points to Christ. And our New Testament hope on the saving work of Jesus Christ is built on this foundation of this system, this blood sacrifice system. Okay? So that's a quick rundown. Here's the deal. You can break Leviticus down into two main sections. Okay? The first one discusses the means of approach and access to a perfectly holy God in order to establish a proper relationship with Him. There was a way to do it. And most certainly, there was a way not to do it. If you want to see how not to do it, go read Leviticus 10. Nadab and Abihu, they immediately mess it up. But let's look at Leviticus 11 real quick. And I've got it up on the screen for you. Leviticus 11 says this. Verse 44, For I am the Lord your God, shall therefore consecrate yourself. Who does it? They do it. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You see, God is laying down a precedence here. You be holy, because I'm holy. And what did he say there in 45? He said, I'm the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to do what? To be your God. Significance. The theme of this book is holiness. That's the idea behind it. How does one be holy? Now again, remember, we have the benefit of hindsight. And so as we read through the rest of this stuff, I want you to be thinking about how does Jesus fit into this? Because we see the beginning from the end because we have it written down. They didn't. They're living this out. So that's the first thing. The theme of the book is holy. The second part of this is the actual instructions on how to maintain fellowship with God. The laws that were pertaining to cleanliness and the regulations on holiness. And of course, you have the feast. It all had to do with this, how this structure was built. But this structure in and of itself actually prefigures the Christian walk with God. Because one becomes holy at salvation. They're made righteous by God. Not by works, not by anything that we can do. It's by God. So now they have access to God, right? The maturation process begins after that. We call that sanctification. But this is the crucifying of the flesh. It's desires to become more like Christ. You be holy because I am holy. And so this book introduced the spiritual disciplines like prayer, like Bible study, like worship, like giving, we can prefigure, this prefigures that in the Christian walk. Because those are things that are part, that we say, well, you need to do this, you need to do this. Why do we say that? It's not like God demands that we have to do it. It's not like he's just down there, you know, looking at us, well, you didn't read your Bible 15 minutes today. Why do we do it? Because it is a way that we grow. It's a way that we become more like God, and that's crucial. That's ultimately the goal on this earth, is we become more like Christ. And because we become more like Christ, then we'll begin to do more of the works like Christ did. Instead of just going to church on Sundays. We'll become those true apostles that are going into all the world. I can't stress that enough. We have a lost and dying generation. And the reason it's lost and dying is because the church is complacent. 
The church has gotten lazy. The church has gotten happy with just showing up on Sunday, saying, just feed me, just give me, Holy Spirit, touch me. And then the point of it was never to just touch us. The point of it was to go out there and be his examples, to be his imager, to be the representation of God in this world, just like Israel was. Just like that. That's who we are to be, and yet we don't do it. I'm getting off my soapbox. Let's move on. So in the first section of Leviticus, it shows that for man to gain access to God, there must both be an offering and an offerer. Something has to be brought. It's obviously brought by who, but with the offerer, in this case, we'd be talking about the priest. Because man cannot just go and make a sacrifice. They had to be anointed, in other words, called, set apart, decided on, which was the Levitical tribe. And of course, you have the high priest, which was the sons of Aaron, specifically. God specified the types of offerings and the acceptable sacrifices. He also established this priesthood. So these were what God said we're going to do. Okay. Now, we're not going to focus on the priesthood today just because of time's sake, because I don't want to keep you guys here all day, and I don't want to lose you with a whole bunch of stuff. But we know this with the priesthood. They were the mediators between man and God. The sacrifice was brought by the individual. The priest would be there. The animal would be sacrificed, and the priest had duties to do with that that would make as a part of making this person either right with God or whatever the case may be, as you'll see here momentarily. So, I mean, just keep that in mind, that there was a job that they had to do. It was ordained by God. It was called by God. This is something that they had to do, and they had to do it correctly every time. There was no room for error. So there are five types of sacrifices or offerings that that are listed it's in the first seven chapters that I said in Leviticus. So each, each one has a chapter unto itself, and then chapters six and seven kind of gives a little more light into it and more of the priestly duties in it, because you'll see a little bit more information given there. So the five types, first one was the burnt offering. The second one was the grain offering or the meal offering. The third one was the peace offering. The fourth one was the sin offering. And the fifth one was a trespass offering. Now, if you're reading carefully, as you're reading through the first three, you'll notice that they are called sweet savor offerings. You ever wondered why that was? I mean, maybe you didn't because you don't read Leviticus, and I don't blame you. But, but it says they're sweet savor offerings because they were voluntary. You didn't have to give those. There was no command that you give that. There was no stipulation that you must. You did this because you wanted to. Where the sin and the trespass offering, those are compulsory. You have to do this. Because they were for sins that were committed. There was no sweet savor in them. Had to. Sweet savor came because out of the abundance of your heart and either thankfulness for God or for something that happened, you brought this offering to Him, but the sin and the compulsory one, or, uh, sin and the trespass are compulsory. We have to in order to be right with God. Because something happened, and we'll get there. And so let's talk about the burnt offering for a minute. And I'm going to try to go slow because there is a lot of information, and I don't want to blow by it. And we did already talk about this a little bit in Exodus, but we're going to go in more detail. The burnt offering, which is the first one mentioned, is Leviticus chapter 1. It's made by using one of three animals. It was either a bull, a goat, or a bird. Now, as you walked in, you may have smelled an offering of goat being cooked in the other room. I assume there will be free samples after service for those of you who are brave enough. But it was a bull, it was a goat, or it was a bird. And what, dig, or what, what set apart, what made them decide which was who brought what, is that it depended on the person's ability. 
money, wealth, whether they could. Obviously, the more that you had, you could afford a bull. The less that you had, you may have to bring a bird. And there was all these stipulations. You see that in Jesus' time, too, and how there was these different stipulations that were used depending on what they could bring. But with it, it had to be a male, and it had to be without defect. Nothing wrong with it. In other words, you're bringing your best. Don't just bring the leftover. You bring your best that you have for God. And what would happen, if you can switch to that, that picture of the altar there, Real quick, remember this is the altar. We talked about this last week. We talked about these things. This is for mobility so they could pick it up and move it. It's, it's good size. The fire would be underneath. These horns here, horns always represent authority. And so a lot of times there'd be blood either wiped on it or sprinkled around it or something. It just depends on the offering. Um, that doesn't really matter for what we're talking about today. But what would happen is they would bring this offering, whatever it would be, and they would lay it up on this thing. And then the person who brought it would lay his hands on this animal, identifying themselves with this animal. And then they would kill it. And in the case of the burnt offering, once it was killed, then they would skin it. Okay? How many of you glad that we don't have to do this no more? Right? Okay. And what would happen is the, the priest would take that blood, they'd have this basin that they catch the blood on, and they would sprinkle this blood on this altar. And the priest would then start the fire, and they would clean the entrails. Then that sound pleasant. And the legs, and then they would burn it. And this one would be completely consumed. It would burn, there would be nothing left but ash when this thing was done. Which is like some of our cooking, right? No? Okay. That's rough. But I mean, picture this. Now, the priest gets the privilege of taking the entrails out, and washing them. That's gross. We're thankful, right? Thank you, God, for the era that we were born in. Right? I mean, but, but this was the practice. So this was the burnt offering. Now, they brought this because of a thankfulness. We'll get there in a minute. Now, the grain offering, or the meal offering, whatever you want to call it, is in Leviticus 2. Now, this is the only sacrifice or the only offering that was given that doesn't involve blood directly. It does indirectly. Because this offering was never brought by itself, but it was in conjunction with something else. And so they would bring this grain offering, and it would be mixed with oil, and it would be mixed with frankincense. And if you remember frankincense, that was one of the things that was brought to Jesus. And so they could bake it into a bread, but the bread, if they did that, they'd had to have absolutely no yeast in it. And I think you guys probably know why. Because yeast or leaven is a symbol of sin all the way throughout the Bible. In other words, this thing had to be pure, and it had to be anointed with oil, and it had to have this sweet fragrance with it. Just be thinking about Jesus as we're going through this stuff. So the priest would take a portion of it, it would be called this memorial portion, and that they would burn it on the altar. The other portion would be eaten by Aaron and his sons and the, you know, the priestly line. I mean, they would, they would eat this. This was part of it. Now, the peace offering is similar to the burnt offering that the animal it had to be without blemish or defect. It could have nothing wrong with it. The same way, they would lay their hands upon it and they would kill it. And the priest would sprinkle the blood around the altar just like in the burnt offering. But there are some differences. The first one is that this animal could be male. It could also be female. And in this one, only the fat portions would be burned to the Lord. They could eat the rest of the animal. Now, when you think of fat, don't just think of fat like you're cutting your steak up and there's a hunk of fat. It's more than that. It's the choices sections, the choices pieces here. 
But this peace offering was absolutely voluntary, and it was given to God in three specific circumstances. The first one would be praising God for His goodness. They would do this as a way of saying thank you to God for His unsought generosity, God just being who He is. He's being good. And so they would bring this offering as a way of saying thank you. The second one would be alongside a fulfilled vow. And a good example of this was when Hannah fulfilled her vow to God by bringing Samuel to the temple. And so on that occasion, she also brought a peace offering to express the peace that was in her heart towards God. Right? I have no resentment. I am holding nothing back in payment of my vow. She's just commemorating. And as you see, there's a lot of things where as they're going, there's always a, a sacrifice or an offering given to the Lord for who He is. And the third one, and this is where you see it a lot, is for thanksgiving. It's for God's deliverance in an hour of dire need. You know, something bad is going on, something terrible. I mean, some circumstance that you can think of. They would just be thankful that God came in and and saved the day, if you will. But none of these three had anything to do with propitiation of sins, appeasing God, or even pacifying. It had nothing to do with any of that. These were from a thankful heart. Okay? But the sin offering is different. The other three that were this sweet savor, you could bring them. It was, you know, obviously you should bring them, but you didn't have to. But the sin offering, which is in Leviticus 4, is different. The sin and the trespass offering are somewhat tied together. But don't think of sin just like I messed up. The sin was really more of a purification offering, if you will. And it says that it was something that was done unintentionally and a lot of times had to do with the commandments of God. They touched something unclean. They, you know, they did something unintentionally. They didn't mean to. And, and, and the trespass goes a little bit beyond that. But perhaps in these circumstances they were unaware that they broke the commandment or that they simply messed up and broke it, whatever the case may be. But it always talks about that as they realize it, they have to do this. And so there were five different elements that could be used inside of between the sin offering and the trespass offering. Okay? The first one would be a young bull. The second one would be a male goat. The third one would be a female goat. The fourth one would be a dove or a pigeon. And the fifth one would be one-tenth of an epaph of fine flour. Isn't that fun? Now, each sacrifice that was brought would depend upon who the offender was. And again, I encourage you to go read this. The only reason we're not reading all of this is because we don't have time to read seven chapters and get the information. But I would encourage you to go back and read this stuff and compare what you're writing down to it and you just, you'll pick up on these intricacies. But if it was a priest that was the offender, they would bring a young bull. It says if it was the congregation, in other words, the, the nation of Israel or something like that, a group, it would be a young bull. If it was a ruler, it would be a male goat. If it was a common person, it would be a female goat. And if it was a per, poor person, it would be the dove or the flower. And just like all the other offerings that were brought, it had to be without spot and it had to have no blemish. It could have nothing wrong with it. They would lay their hands on it. They would kill the animal. And here, the fat portions are burned on the altar, just like we've seen before. Nothing real. But this one does have a little little different twist on it. The priest would take the rest of the animal outside of the camp in a place that was already ceremonially cleansed, and there he would burn it. Now, the priest could eat a portion of this animal inside the tabernacle if, if they wanted. They didn't have to, but they could. But 
when it was prepared, it had to either be in a broken earthen vessel or a bronze pot that was scoured and rinsed with water. Now just keep that in the back of your mind as we keep going. We're just we're setting up to where Christ comes into the picture in all of this. So that's the sin offering. Now let's talk about the trespass offering. This is a continuation on the sin offering because obviously we've missed something. Something's gone wrong. Where the sin offering was really more for sins against God, this would be come into play where it was something against man or it was something against a holy thing. If a person lied or they stole from their neighbor or they overheard someone swearing and kept silent or if they touched something unclean, again, there, there, it would, the trespass offering had more to do with something involving another individual or a holy thing that God has set as part as holy. There were three kinds of offerings that could be brought in this instance, a female lamb, the two doves or the pigeons, or the one-tenth of the epaph of flour, which contains no oil or frankincense in it. It's just the, the flour itself. Now, the two doves, if they were brought, it says that one would be for a sin offering, and the other one would be for a trespass offering. Okay? So it works just like a, a sin offering in the way that things were done, but it's a little bit different in the fact in this one, they would have to make restitution for whatever they did. If it was against the holy things of God, then they would be required to bring the animal. It had to be without spot or without blemish, and they would also had to add one-fifth the value of the item in silver and give it to the priest because this was against the holy things of God. Okay, So whatever that was, however they decided what the value was, they had to add a fifth to it. If it was against somebody else, they would have to, again, do the sacrifice, but they would make up for the lost item plus one-fifth of the value. Okay, So you get an idea of where these go. These are intricate. I'm kind of giving you a quick rundown, a, a Reader's Digest version, if you will, because there's a lot to it. For fun reading, go read the first five chapters of Leviticus. Your life will never be the same, I can promise you that. But the, for the point of what we're doing is where does Christ fit into all of this? Was Christ our sacrifice? Yes, of course, we know that. But how so? How intricate into the details are we? If you remember, one of the first things we did is we, we, we took the idea of what's called progressive revelation, and we built on the Lamb of God idea from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through Revelation and how the idea of what the Lamb of God was and who the Lamb of God was and how that builds and that grows in the understanding that we have. So where does Christ fit in to these offerings, to these sacrifices? Well, let's start at the beginning with the burnt offering. Let's look at Ephesians 5.2. Now, they don't necessarily say exactly it was a burnt offering or anything like that, but you can pick up on some intricacies. Ephesians 5.2, And walk in love... As Christ has also loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, how many of you guys ever connected anything in Leviticus to that verse? If we're, I mean, if we're being honest, we don't. Why? Because we don't know our Old Testament very well. We don't go back and read this stuff. But this is something that Paul obviously would have known. It's a sweet-smelling aroma. Now, what does that tell us? It wasn't compulsory. It was because he chose to right? By accepting Him as our burnt offering, we identify ourselves with Him and confess that He died as our substitute. Hands were laid on them. The sacrifice was made in our place, and it's a sweet-smelling aroma. In other words, Jesus stepped in here. It's interesting, right? 
One little verse in Ephesians. All right, let's go on to the grain offering or the meal offering. What is the meaning of the meal offering? Well, the meal offering has to be of wheat. It's the best and most value of all the grains for food, and it had to be of the finest of the wheat. It had to be the best. Now, the one thing to know about wheat is that it does not grow spontaneously. It has to be planted. The soil has to be prepared, and it has to be planted. It's not like it just springs up. Wheat, then, when we look at this, it represents the outcome of man's labor and toil. It is also a common article of food of both the rich and the poor, as was the olive, in which from where the oil that comes from, it was obtainable by all. Everybody could do it. It didn't matter. It wasn't a social status whether you had wheat or you had the oil. Everybody had it. But the wheat here was not to be presented to the Lord as grain. It was to be ground and sifted, and just getting into a little bit more detail here. It was where the offer, and if the offer had an, an oven, then they would bake it into these bread or this cakes or whatever you want to call it, and it would be food for the priest, and, but he could not grind and bake it. He had to parch it and present it in that form if they had an oven. They couldn't just bring it. They had to take an extra step. The meaning of the meal offering, when we look at this, therefore, become, begins to come into light a little bit. It was offered with a burnt offering in conjunction to the burnt offering, and as we saw, the meaning of the burnt offering was this consecration of the body of the offerer. It follows in that this meal offering, which is the fruit of man's labor, means that we are not only to consecrate our bodies as a living sacrifice to God, but we are to consecrate the fruit of our toil, the fruit of our works, of all things that we do as well. It's not only the means of the fruit of our physical stuff, but our spiritual work, because it's the Lord's harvest field. It takes on this new dynamic. The fact that only a handful of the meal offering was consumed on the altar and the rest would be eaten with, with the, or by the priest has significance as well. It means that the bulk of our gifts should go to support the gospel. Right? There's nothing wrong with big houses, new cars, new boats, and something like that. But they cannot, we cannot be consumed by those. The bulk of our, our, our being should be giving to the Lord where He leads us. And the problem is, is in this country, is the only insight that we have into giving of the Lord is giving to specific ministries. Whatever happened to the good old days of a Pentecostal handshake? You walk up to somebody with a $20 bill in your hand, you shake their hand, and you bless them with it. You know of somebody in need. What happened to the day where, where you've got a single mom who's struggling to get by and you show up with a pack of diapers? You show up with some form, you whatever. I mean, it's this giving because why? We have a heart for the Lord. We love people. We love God. We're going for Him. We've lost that. We think that if we just give into this ministry that they're going to do all the work and we get some of the reward because of that. What happened to getting our hands dirty and getting into the people's lives and where they are? So this meal offering in and of itself, represents Christ, who was the great antitype to the meal offering. Remember, type and antitype, we talked about that. You have what happened, and then you have the thing that corresponds with it, okay? And I'm going to read this to you, because this is interesting. I, 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 some, uh, some person way smarter than me put this together, referring to Jesus. He was the corn of wheat, bruised in the mill of Calvary, that was mixed with the oil of the Holy Spirit, seasoned with the salt of incorruption, and offered with the frankincense of a holy life. I'll read that again because I like it. He was the corn of wheat, bruised in the mill of Calvary, and was mixed with the oil of the Holy Spirit, seasoned with the salt of incorruption, and offered with the frankincense of a holy life. I mean, this is Jesus in every little nuance of this meal offering that was given. In him was no corruption. 
There was nothing in there. That, there was no leaven. There was nothing. And he became the bread of life. Well, what about the peace offering? The peace offering was an offering of reconciliation. And so, as we said, part of it was burnt, but part of it was eaten in the courtyard by the offer and any person that they would bring along. I mean, they would, I'll say had a party, but that's obviously not the right term. But they would do it. And this was voluntary, and it signified reconciliation to God. It was, in other words, that because we're reconciled to God, because you remember, sin and trespass, clean, unclean, those are the things. It's making them pure. These people were already pure because they've done the things they're supposed to do. This is out of, I am reconciled with God, therefore I am going to bring this peace offering. It's not to obtain reconciliation, it's because I already have it. That I will partake of this meal with my friends, if you will, friends and family. Now, turn over to Matthew 26. And I want you to think of how this would play into what we're about to read. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciple, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sin. But I say to you, I will not drink on the fruit of this vine from now until the day that I drink it, when the, uh, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. What is, what is this thing? is that it's a communion. It's what we do. We do it here once a month. I hope you do it more than that at home. But it's like, what, what are we seeing here in this peace offering? It's that because we are reconciled to God and we have favor with Him, we do this in remembrance of Him. We do it as a body of believers together with one common heart, one common purpose, one common uh, faith, and that we do this together to remember the work that He's done because we're reconciled to Him. Taking it doesn't reconcile us to Him. We're already reconciled, and that's why we do it. You guys see how those things two, those two things tie together? One more verse here, Colossians 1, starting in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell, and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Again, what are we seeing? It was the blood of His cross that brought peace and reconciliation to us, and we do these things in remembrance of Him. Our life should be a living sacrifice to Him every day. Now let's talk about this sin offering. And remember, this is this purification. It's to make you holy. We know that Jesus was our sin offering. If you spent any amount of time in church ever, you've heard that. But there's something significant to remember about this. The fat was burned on the altar, but the remainder of the animal was burned outside of the camp. Now that's interesting. Why would that be done? And how on earth does that even tie to Jesus? Well, to get that answer, you actually got to go to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Interesting. Why is Jesus our sin offering? Because the writer of Hebrews told us. I mean, here you see the corresponding, the correlation. They're tying together. Type, anti-type. The fulfillment. 
you see Jesus many times fulfilling something that was done in the Old Testament and undoing, the supernatural undoing. We've been talking about that on Wednesday nights. We've been teaching through the book of Acts. And how one example of that um, is that you see where 3,000 people come to the Lord and then you turn back and you see at the giving of the law the 3,000 people died. It's this type and anti-type, this fulfilling that Jesus did. You see it when he was tempted by Satan. You know, in Matthew 4. And how the temptations specifically can correspond with something that happened with Israel in the Old Testament where they failed, and yet you have Jesus who overcame the temptation. He is our sin offering. Now the trespass offering is the one where it's a sin committed against another person or a holy thing of God. Now let's look at 2 Corinthians 5. Starting in verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed us to us the word of reconciliation. Now, what is he talking about here? What is Paul talking about here? Obviously, the word trespass should bring up a red flag or a ding or whatever in your head. That's like, oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait. Why did he use trespass there? Why did he not just say sins? But he used the word trespass. Obviously, Paul knew about the trespass offering. But he's saying he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, when we become right with God, what should we be doing? We should take on a ministry of reconciliation and showing other people, how do you become right with God? Your life is unclean. Your life is unholy. How can we that? Now, a way that you can look at this of this sin and this trespass offering is like this. The sin offering, we could say, is, is for our sin nature. How we're born, right? I did not have to teach my children to fight. They figured it out on their own. And they are experts at it. If you're ever looking for some guidance on how to do that, my kids will gladly show you, right? You don't have to teach a child to lie. They do it. You don't have to teach a child to steal. They'll do it. Now, I'm not talking about robbing a bank, but my son sure has a habit of stealing gum and then spitting it on the floor, but that's another problem. So the sin offering was made for our sin nature, but the trespass offering, we could say, is for the fruits of it, right? So because we have this unholy state, the fruit of our lives mimics that. It mirrors that. It's kind of like the, the, the verse, out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks, right? Things come out depending on what's in there. So because we're fallen and we have the sin nature that we act out on it, and that's where these two offerings come into play. But I want to show you something in Isaiah 53 that maybe you've never picked up on. Now, this is probably the most famous messianic prophecy that's out there, unless you're talking to a Jewish person, in which case it has nothing to do with Jesus. That's besides the point. But Isaiah 53, verses 4 and 5, and I want you to catch this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Now watch this. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Now, look at those two words, wounded and bruised. What is a bruise? It's an injury that's inside, right? What would a wound be considered? It's an injury that is coming out. Blood would be flowing out of it. While a bruise is like internal bleeding, if you will, to a very minor degree, 
a wound would be blood profuding from it. What are these two offerings? The sin nature and the fruits of it. What did Jesus die for? He took care of our sin nature, what was inside of us. And because of that, the fruit of it should match that. It's all right there in our Bible that we don't spend enough time in. This is the God that we serve. The masterful hand that put this Bible together that we take for granted, that we have to blow the dust off every once in a while. That the King of Kings and Lord of Lords said, hey, let me give you a manual on how you can come out of this and how you can live your life and how you don't have to be in bondage to the ways of the enemy. Let's look at one more verse. Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 8. I think I'll get to 8. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of His great love which he, of, with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved and raised up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's the offering of God. God appeased the requirements that were against us by sending his son. The picture of that's painted in a horribly boring to read book of Leviticus and yet we see how Jesus fulfilled all of this and brought this to himself. It's not the Old Testament or the New Testament. The Old Testament is this foundation upon which we see this. This is how we know that we're not just serving a God. Because you cannot convince me for one second that some writer, some Jewish scribe, could put this thing together as intricately as it's designed. Because the message of salvation and the Savior is all the way throughout the book in every nuance and every detail and every nook and cranny, if you will. I mean, we can see this everywhere because we serve a big God. It's our job to go out there and unmind this stuff and dig for this stuff and find it. And when we look at what they went through just to be in fellowship with God, to worship Him, we should be that much more thankful that we have a great high priest that it mediates for us on our behalf, that He paid the price for us, that He was the greatest offering and offerer because why? There was no leaven in Him. There was no sin there. So he could act on both. The high priest every year on the Day of Atonement would have to go in there and he'd have to offer a sacrifice for himself as well as all the other people before he could ever enter into the presence of God. And yet you and I walk freely. Why? Because it is the gift of God. The salvation is from him. The sacrifice has been made. We don't have to do it. Thank you, Jesus. Now with that, we're going to receive communion today. And what are we going to do? Think about what we just talked about, this peace offering this this thing we do it because we can we do it because we want to because we want to look back at the cross and say jesus thank you so jim if you would and whoever else you've got lined up but as we do as you receive we're going to take it all together here at the end you don't have to be a member of the church to take communion with you just got to be a believer in the lord a child of god and we'll do it together but it's one of those things let's just take a minute and as you receive it we're going to play a song here and if you'd pick a nice song back there for, for us, my friend. We're just going to spend a few minutes worshiping God. And we're going to do exactly what we do. We're going to reflect. We're going to look into our lives and say, Lord, are we right where you want us to be? And we're going to look back on what Jesus did, and we're going to be thankful. So go ahead.
Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11. And this is right out of the book of Luke. It says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which He was betrayed, He took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood, and this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And that's exactly what we're doing. It's proclaiming the death that made us right with God. We come before Him every time we do this, and then you do it at home as an offering to Him because He paid this price for us. And we are partakers of it because of Him. And so when we do this, one of the things that we always do is we want to look in our hearts and say, am I where I need to be? Am I right on the path of where God would have me? And it's a time to get right. It's a time to focus on Him. 